Hi everybody and welcome to another episode of the Habits Habit Podcast. My name is Brian Conroy. You're very welcome to this episode in which we continue to look at habits, happiness and human behaviour with my guest, Dr. Sylvain Laborde. Dr. Laborde, uh, or Syl to me, uh, has a PhD in sports science, a PhD in psychology. He is a lecturer and researcher with the um, German Sports High Performance Institute in Köln, where he works in the, that's Cologne or Cullen or Kuhn, depending on um, your level of um, German pronunciation, uh, where he works in the Department of Performance Psychology. He works with elite athletes, basically, uh, on how psychology can help them improve their performance. Uh, he's a very, very interesting guy, not to mention an awesome accent. Uh, so please do give it a review, do give it some stars, do give it some love to help other people find the podcast. Here's Dr. Sylvain Laborde. When uh, I saw the title of your paper. It, I was like, okay, this is going to be something I will be able to understand. Uh, it's called Performance Habits, a Framework Proposal. Um, and for someone who's not a psychologist or a scientist, performance habits is a phrase that we would know and we would see because all you have to do is Google anything to do with habits and you will see performance of high performers and, um, you know, 20 things high performers do in the morning before they leave the house. So, it is something that is out there, but do we, uh, the Googling public, actually know what we're looking for or what we're finding? So actually, it's exactly how I started as well. So uh, I got my personal interest in habits and then when um, willing to um, improve them and learn from um, other people, then uh, I went to Google. And then, as you just said, so performance habits uh, in Google retrieves millions of uh, results. Um, and then as I'm a scientist, I wanted to psychologist, I wanted to check, okay, what does science, uh, psychology says about that? Um, and I came quickly to the conclusion, if we already know about a lot about uh, habits links to, let's say, uh, perhaps lifestyle, um, we don't know that much about habits that really lead to performance from a scientific point of view. So I'm coming from um, a sports psychology background, so we, we try to help the performance of uh, athletes, uh, amateur and elite athletes, uh, playing on their mental game. And um, I got this uh, feeling that we should uh, definitely look into this habits uh, topic to improve the performance. So that's how everything started for me. And uh, I also quickly recognized that there was actually nothing really um, scientific behind this performance habits notion. That's something I was going to ask. I'm conscious. I don't want to bash any other authors or anything like that. Um, But some of us, you know, the the science in inverted commas they allude to it or they say it is scientific, but you couldn't put your finger on, you know, a sciencey bit. It's more, hey, I've talked to a lot of people and, you know, some of them have done surveys. And so I know for a fact this is what works. Am I being unfair to those people? No, no, that's uh, actually uh, most of it um, is exactly what you uh, described. And when I really wanted to get the, the science of a bit, then um, I came across the page because of um, Ben Gardner, uh, Pippa Lally that you cited before. So um, those are really, for me, the one in psychology who really the great advancements in the topic of habits. And then I wanted to bring this um, habit topic from the, let's say, the health uh, domain to the performance domain. Okay, let's do a spoiler alert, uh, Silva, because you said you, were, you got into this because you were interested in habits yourself. So having read the pop psychology and now having done the science bit, are you now an expert? Are you brilliant at everything and have no bad habits? Short and true answer. No. Damn it. So, uh, that's no good. So that's, I think that's a lifelong and behavior. And that's good, actually, because there's always uh, progress uh, to make, I think. And I'm always um, keen, uh, keen on learning, on improving. And um, I love to get into the topic of habits, performance habits, when it comes to morning routines, to evening routines, to uh, training routines. And um, see, I'm using the word routine because it's also what we see in popular psychology. But science would make a difference for what we call a habit and what we call a routine, for example. Okay, well, let's talk about that for a, a, a second, because I'm interested in that. What's the difference between habits and routine? And I'm going to throw in ritual as well. So is there a, a scientific difference between them? Or what is what would you say the difference is? Yeah, so as 
long as you're thinking about doing something, this is what we would call a routine. It would become a habit when you don't need to think about it, so when it became fully automatic. And the, if we put ritual into this, ritual would um, encompass some cultural, some social uh, aspects uh, linked link to it. Okay. So do all habits, most habits or some habits start off as routine and then become habitual and automatic? Or is that a, a wrong understanding or too basic an understanding of how to go about creating a habit? No, that, that's true. So um, basically you will um, try to create um, stimulus answer uh, conditions. So stimulus response condition. So yes, uh, you could say that most habits could start with a routine. So when you consciously uh, do things and try to bind them to some um, timestamp in your day, so you can basically start to associate them to a specific stimulus. And that's the secret into turning them into automatic actions. Okay. Now, th this conversation is probably going to shoot off in a load of different directions because I'm interested in high performers in terms of sport, um, but also in terms of people like myself who are not high performance in sport or, or probably in any other factor. But to the extent that habits are easier to form if there's a routine, are high performance athletes not better set up to make those things habits then because i would assume that most high performing athletes for example follow pretty strict routines in terms of their whole life their diet their sleep um you know how they go about their day go to training at time x train for a certain amount of time then go to the physio then do this then do that like it it, it seems from what i understand of uh, high performance academies and and such like that it is pretty routine orientated and regimented so they're well placed for these things to become habitual, are they not? Exactly. So, um, and now perhaps we can comment on the characteristic of habits that make uh, them really uh, entitled to uh, be implemented into the performance uh, field and that would fit perfectly athletes. Is because they free, they free up mental resources. When you don't need to think about something, these are additional resources you can use for something else. And the fact that athletes routinize their uh, life uh, to uh, the greatest uh, extent help them to focus on only things that um, matter and um, basically to automatize as many actions as possible so as to save this, we would call that in psychology, cognitive energy. Automatic processes uh, enable you um, to uh, make great performance uh, under pressure. And this is why uh, athletes would benefit from them. I was thinking about this recently. I don't know if you've heard, have you read uh, Andre Agassi's book? Um, I can't remember what it's called, but it's basically his autobiography. Not yet, no. No, okay. Firstly, it's a really interesting book. Secondly, turns out he doesn't really like tennis all that much. But thirdly, and importantly, from from I, from when he was a baby, his dad, now this is a bit mean, I'm not suggesting this is the way to success, but strapped um, table tennis bats to his hands uh, and started him hitting balls literally before he could walk. Um, and he installed uh, one of those uh, automatic ball um, throwers uh, in a court out there back garden. And his theory was, and this is kind of similar to the 10,000 hours theory, but his theory was, if Andre could hit a million tennis balls, it would be so automatic to him that no one would be able to beat him. And it's only occurring to me now that that is, you know, he was trying to get it to such a point where, you know, a professional tennis player doesn't think about hitting the ball, I'm assuming. Now, you tell me, you're the sports psychologist, but I presume not. Yeah, so uh, here we see a perfect uh, depiction of uh, automatism and about that, I always remember a um, famous sentence from the Navy SEALs uh, who say, you, under pressure, you always come back to your training level, meaning to what you automatically, you know how to do automatically. So basically, training is a matter of automatizing all these uh, movements to make you then perform without having to think about them under pressure. Can I ask, Sylvain, sorry, it's, it's, it's a, maybe an odd and possibly inappropriate question, but here we are. Um, 
were you are you a high performer were you a high performing athlete or i mean do you have any experience of this yourself that caused you to want to go back and understand how you became high performing no, I wish I was. I was a big fan of cycling, so of course uh, I'm, I'm French. I wanted to do the Tour de France. Um, this then uh, happened, so I became a sports psychologist. Uh, um, but you, then you I weren't became... taking enough drugs, Sylvain. That's probably where you <laughs> went wrong. <laughs> Certainly, uh, but then I wanted to understand the mechanisms that uh, enable people to reach this elite level. Indeed. Okay. Because I'm wondering, um, for example, uh, and this has been something that has uh, cropped up with some of these conversations. So I talked to Fergus Connolly, who's a high performance coach, and uh, Keith Barry, and a couple of other people who would who would market themselves and hold themselves out as high performance coaches. And so, are these skills or routines, or is the psychology of this teachable? And if so, should we all be trying to? mirror or learn from high performing athletes or business people or whoever as in you know in the way pop psychology does so says hey look this is what richard branson does he gets up at four o'clock in the morning he goes for a jog he does this and look at him he's a millionaire you should do it too i mean i know that's not the scientific way but i mean in fact does the science end up saying yeah well actually that is what you should do no so here we may be differentiating the habit itself and its consequences uh, on performance from the fact that I would, <clears throat> sorry, I would be uh, doing these habits because a role model of mine is doing them. And now we are turning to social psychology. And we know that um, we can do a lot, learn a lot from actions, from people we respect, people that um, inspire us. And in this case, we will get this role model effect that if um, someone, again, that inspires us does something specific, even if this action itself is not something that would be directly linked to performance, as we could say, but if um, this person does it and this person inspires us, then it will still have this motivational effect on us. And just for um, this reason, this might be interesting also to look at the habits of people that inspire us. Okay, so is that a kind of almost placebo effect of of this that well it works for this person that i really admire so i'm going to do it it'll work for me and because you think it's going to work it does have a an impact to some extent uh, we could indeed call this a placebo effect because indeed perhaps the habit per se or the action per se that became a um, habit is not that much linked to performance if we would compare it to other techniques that would improve performance but the fact that the person i respect the most or in my sport or in any domain then does it, will have a big motivational impact on me. Okay. The, the, looking at the um, specific uh, paper that first brought me to, to chat to you, it's kind of, um, you don't come to a conclusion, but the, the factors that you look at, uh, I recognize. So what I'm slightly interested in in, in this podcast is trying to, understand the the fact from the fiction and the myth from the reality you know so what i've discovered and i've gone through loads of those google pages because i was just curious to see if there was any commonality so ones that come up time and time again would be the likes of uh meditation getting up early and having a morning routine uh getting enough sleep reading a lot, uh, you know, improving your general knowledge. Um, and then there's things like journaling, all these kind of things. So those are kind of what Google, I guess, will tell you you should be doing to be successful. Tell me a little bit about the paper that you co-authored and what you were looking for and what you found. So basically in this paper, we started from the first um first impression we got from the scientific literature that there was really nothing uh, in terms of performance habits. But our approach was the following, to look for factors, for all the factors. So we did um, a big um, mapping review, uh, as it is called. We wanted to look for factors influencing human performance. And then from these factors, checking those that could be turned into habits. And about those factors influencing um, human performance, we, first of all, didn't look to uh, single studies, but to um, either meta-analysis or systematic reviews. So we basically checked the hard evidence where there was already accumulated evidence about factors influencing human performance. And when we then um, check all those 
meta-analysis and reviews. So um, just a quick explanation about those. Um, they would be summarizing a large range of studies. So we would not be talking about um, individual study results, but about scientific evidence that summarized further scientific evidence. So we really wanted to go with the hard facts with this. And when we got this, we tried to, um, by some theme analysis uh, techniques, to build a map of those performance habits. And that's how we came up with um, some content reduction to those eight uh, performance habit categories, dimensions that we present uh, in the paper. Um, we'll, we'll go through each of those in a second, those eight, if you like. But was the idea or is the idea to, to identify eight, if you like, say certain uh, routines or, or directional routines. So like if I could say, you know, let's just say sleep and get enough sleep and how you could habitualize that into a sleep routine, getting to bed at the right time, cutting out blue light, putting down screen time um, and, and all of that. And you kind of say, right, if you do that and then you do this and you do this and you do this for each of the eight areas and habitualize good behavior in all of those, you will improve your chances of being a high performer or a high achiever. Indeed, that was the idea behind, so that we could suggest dimensions for uh, sports psychologists, for coaches to work with in order to make a change in people's lives. So uh, we know that changing people's behavior is one of the hardest things that uh, we can do, but there are techniques to do that. And using habits, habits um, formation for this, um, seem to us a good um, prospects, uh, given the again the benefits, the theoretical benefits of habits. And when I say theoretical benefits, we come back to the definition of things that are done automatically, freeing up cognitive resources that could be then used for something else. Okay, I'm wondering, um, Sylvan, and maybe there was none, but did you have a, a, a specific? person or type of person in mind that this would be useful for? So um, I'm working at the German Sport University in Cologne, so I'm mainly surrounded by athletes and coaches, and I really had sport people in mind when I was doing this. But also with the thinking that uh, sport is not the only domain where you can talk about performance, uh, of course, and that what we would find appropriate for athletes, we could to some degree extend also to other fields, other domains. With your, with your experience and your exposure to high-performance athletes, two kind of follow-on questions. One of which is, do you think it's possible to be, you know, elite level or world-class at, uh, you know, any particular sport, it doesn't matter which one, without a lot of good habits and without very few bad habits? Or is it just, you're just fighting against the tide too much that you'll never make it if you don't have those habits in place? I mean, this is a question that science would still have to answer because we know that to reach elite level, so there's a lot of training behind. To which extent this uh, training was routinized or yeah, combined with habits, this is still something we would need to investigate. Are you familiar with the um, story of uh, Michael Phelps, the American swimmer, um, practicing swimming with uh, water in his goggles? Oh, yeah, that's an example that actually uh, I often take um, to talk about how to control the uncontrollable, so how to train in the worst uh, conditions, so as basically nothing can surprise you uh, the day of the competition. Yeah, um, and so... The, the idea is that, uh, you know, again, you don't have to think about it. So he could swim his lengths with, you know, water in his eyes, with whatever. He just was so well practiced at swimming that, you know, he didn't have to think about it even when something went wrong. Indeed. And, uh, but still, here we could still argue that we could differentiate the fact of uh, so training with water in your goggles was it really a habit of, uh, to which extent was it a habit um, for him or was it just a training accessory used by this coach and among other uh, accessories? So if we would think uh, about talking about habits, we would have to check how uh, systematic it was for him to do it automatically, for example, at each training. And this, I don't know, for example, I know he did it, but I'm not sure if it did it as part of a habit. Yeah. 
I understand. So to the extent that if like if if I'm understanding this in my layman's terms, if he had to think, right, I'm now swimming with with water in my eyes. Here's what I need to do. I need to count differently or I need to do something differently. Then you'd say, well, that's not a habit because it wasn't automatic behavior. It was a thought considered response to the situation he found himself in. And here again, we would differentiate automatization uh, in sport, like you would say in, like you would see in athletes, and really from the habit, which you would, so a habit, you don't think about it when you do it, but you don't need also to think when you uh, start it, basically, when you initiate it. So it would be an additional step. Right. Interesting. Okay, let's, um, let's have a quick chat then about the, the eight areas where we think or where, it's, where, the, where your research uh, and uh, assessment of the meta-analysis suggests we should be focusing. I say we, I mean like part of, the, part of this uh, whole podcast is you know, to try and figure out, well, what, what could I be doing better? What could anyone listening to this be doing better? And particularly, and I'll, I'll get to it, <laughs> you know, where do you start? You know, I mean, even just saying, well, there's eight areas you should focus on makes me feel a little stressed and tired. I'm like, I, I don't know if I have the time or the energy to focus on eight separate areas. So first of all, what are the eight areas? Then maybe we'll chat through them a little bit and then we can ask, I might ask a few questions about, you know, where to start. Sure. So um, we summarize those eight areas uh, with eight um, terms to uh, keep them in mind simply which are eat, sleep, move, which would be our first three pillars, and then think, be effective, learn, relax, and create. And when you asked, where should I start? I can give you the answer. Neuroscience can give you the answer. When I said at the beginning, there are three pillars, eat, sleep, move, those are the ones to start with. If you don't start with them, you don't need even to think about the others. If you don't get those three, first three threats, you don't need to start to think about something else. So it's what we know from, when I say from neuroscience, because those are the three main aspects that will keep your brain alive, I could say. Beyond seeing performing, first of all, alive. So you will need to really pay attention to those sleep, eat, and move dimensions to ensure that you get a solid ground on which uh, you could build up further habits. Okay, right. Sylvain, let's dive in at the deep end here and we're going to talk about sleep and I'll tell you why. Because I have three small children and I don't get enough <laughs> of it, okay? I know for a fact I don't get enough of it. I read that book, Why We Sleep, and I nearly had a heart attack on the spot because I'm like, oh my God. God, oh my God, this is terrible. I am killing myself one night at a time. Um, like, let me make me feel better for a start. As a uh, psychologist interested in habits, working with high performers, how much sleep are you getting a night, Sylvan? Six to seven hours. Okay. That's not, that's okay. I prefer if it was five to six hours, but what, do, is there a consensus now? So everyone will say, you know, you need seven to eight hours sleep. But then you have all this chat about chronotypes. You have all this chat about, you know, various different elements that have a bearing on um, sleep. Is there a consensus or will there ever be a consensus? So in sleeps, you will find different guidelines. But um, I think so most of the recommendations go, uh, like you said, so to, um, in the duration of seven, eight hours uh, per night. And then uh, perhaps more than the amount of sleep, it's also the, the sleep quality, I would say, that uh, matters. And in terms of sleep quality, then we, in, if I want to link the topic to habits, then uh, we would be talking about evening and morning um, routines. And the one simple thing that you can start to think about sleeping is getting your hours straight in terms of going to bed hours and in terms of waking up hours, because then this will help you. This will help your body to um, prepare yourself basically to go to sleep and to wake up at um, regular time and you will do something good for you because then you will train your internal clock um, to again prepare all the physiological reaction you need to go to sleep and to wake up. I, I know you're not a sleep scientist but while we're on the topic I, I might as well ask. So 
Uh, I was a, a morning uh, breakfast show radio presenter for uh, six years. And so I got up at five o'clock every morning for six years. And I would wake up at five o'clock myself without an alarm. I still had an alarm set, but I would always wake up. But at the weekend, I wouldn't. I never understood it. No one else ever understood it. They would always say, but you're, you know, you must wake up at five o'clock on Saturday and Sunday. And I didn't. Any thoughts? Yeah, this is actually uh, indeed surprising because normally when you really get this uh, morning uh, routine to wake up always at the same time, when I say your body is preparing yourself, for example, we get some um, hormones or the stress hormone cortisol is um, already rising up um, to prepare your body to uh, face the um, new day. And uh, it, this hormone doesn't know basically it's weekend. So if it does it systematically at the same time during the week, it should also have been doing it during the, the weekend. So perhaps it would have been interesting to see still if the quality of sleep you are getting in, the last, in those last sleep hours on the weekend were as quality-wise as the other hours of the night, for example. Yeah, okay. So, okay, so we're going to start with our three pillars. So we're going to sleep better, which means... It doesn't necessarily, well, am I right? It doesn't necessarily mean go to bed earlier and get up earlier. It could mean go to bed later and get up later, but it's about consistency of getting roughly the same amount of sleep at roughly the same time each night. Indeed. And when we are talking about sleep quality, this is also to favor an environment um, to help you sleep, uh, so to uh, decrease this uh, sleep onset. So meaning that you would get an evening routine that would put you, um, that would, uh, if I'm talking about uh, your inside, um, so inside of your body, you got your autonomic nervous system that will um, drive all those functions that work without you having to think about them. And we know that um, to go to sleep, you need to press the brake in your body. And the brake is called the parasympathetic nervous system. So it's our rest and digest system in opposition to the sympathetic system that says for the fight or flight reaction. So before sleeping, you want to activate this parasympathetic nervous system. And this, you can do it um, very nicely using evening routines like um, relaxation techniques because relaxation techniques will help you to press the brake in your body. And pressing the brake in your body before going to sleep will help you to get a better sleep quality as shown uh, in studies. Okay. And on a practical level, then it's, I mean, I'm hearing this more and more, and I suppose it makes sense. But first it was put on a blue light filter on your screens so that blue light isn't keeping you awake. But it seems to be there's a move away from even that. And it's, if you want really good sleep, don't have any screen time a couple of hours or a certain amount of time before, you know, almost as part of your nighttime routine. Is that recommended? Yes, so it's true that better than a screen with um, a blue screen filter will be no screen, the, the recommendation, if we can um, do this, because this will also enable to uh, have a um, higher increase of this uh, break activity in the body. Okay. Um, right. So our high performer has a good night's sleep and then they get up. The next pillar is uh, to eat, which obviously is going to be to eat uh, healthily. And just one thing that occurs to me, um, both in terms of sleep and in terms of eating, and in a minute in terms of moving, and this will be very uh, personal to me probably, but to the extent that, for example, I didn't, so when I was getting up in the morning to do the breakfast show, I just it was too early for me to eat. So I never had breakfast before the show so i would probably be up at five but i mightn't eat until 10 o'clock in the morning and presumably that's not in keeping with good eating habits but had i not then habitualized my eating habits if you if you follow me yeah certainly in this sense and I mean, um, you know better than me what it means to uh, get um, a radio show than uh, at five uh, in the morning. But then we can compare this to, for example, doing some physical activity. So we could wonder how much energy was needed uh, for your body to do this activity. And was it okay for your body to wait until the time you had um, then uh, when you were hungry uh, again to get the first meal of the day? So from this uh, perspective, I would not see it uh, necessarily as a disadvantage uh, to start the day if um, you really are not hungry at all, uh, and then to wait for the first time of the day where you can eat being hungry. And so then is, is the, where there was a kind of consensus uh, on the sleep pillar about, you know, 
certain amount of time uh, consistently at certain times. Is the eat biller far more subjective in terms of knowing your own body and knowing what works for you? And in this case, I would not call that necessarily more subjective, but perhaps more individualized in the sense that, um, yes, there are plenty of uh, dietary recommendations and uh, you would always have to check what would work uh, for you. But we do know as well some main pillars about uh, eating, about what you should uh, be eating, what you should rather avoid, uh, even if there's a lot of um, room uh, within this uh, pillar. There's some, let's say, main guidelines that one could follow. Okay. And again, I know you're not a dietitian, um, but no. in broad terms, uh, firstly, and then secondly, um, so what are the, the, the healthy eating um, what, uh, that could be habitualized, I guess? Is it, is it a case of eating the same number of meals at the same time? I'm just thinking in terms of that starting with a routine with a view to it becoming a habit. I mean, are we talking about the times and places? Are we talking about, you know, eating the same food every day or I just, if you could maybe just expand a little bit on that, that would be brilliant. Yeah. Uh, actually it goes in many directions that you are cited. So it's, uh, and I think it is as much about the content of um, eating. So basically what you are eating that about the context uh, of eating. So uh, in primal, when you're eating, are you watching TV? Are you reading? Are you texting uh, or are you paying full aware attention to what you are eating? So those kind of details, do make a difference also on the long term. Are you taking your, main, your meal alone? Are you taking your meal with family, with friends? So all this will also be part of the, what I call the eating habit. So that's why uh, it's not only about the what, it's also about the how. I've, I've only heard about this mindful eating thing quite recently. Is that what you were touching on there about being you know, present when you're eating? And, and so it's this concept of uh, really slowing down your eating and being conscious of it. And that is that, uh, again, I say one of the things that you've come across in the research as being something high performers do. So indeed, you can link that to some mindfulness practices, some meditation practices uh, that encourage you not necessarily only during eating, but uh, as much as possible in the different many activities of your life to be just aware of the present moment. And that would, of course, include eating. Right. When it comes to high performers, I, I don't know if you know the answer to this from working with them in, in the Institute, but how do they go about uh, finding, forming, and uh, habitualizing their eating habits. Is that part of a High Performance Academy program, uh, trial and error? Is that the way that it's done in practical terms? So yes, you will often see in um, <clears throat> training academies, um, so um, a high attention on nutrition. And then you have different approaches in terms of either you take care for the athletes, you take care of everything, or you make also the athletes um, responsible. And given you were talking about the um, um, high performance, so then uh, one, when talking about eating habits, uh, one name that directly comes to my mind is Novak Djokovic, the tennis player, because he wrote his biography, his book, mainly about the, his eating habits, so he switched his diet to uh, gluten-free. Uh, and then he's basically telling his journey about the gluten-free um, diet and how it became a habit for him and how he structured his whole life to uh, help him maintain this habit, basically. So going to a kind of um, lecturing family about it and also getting his personal cook that would always um, get his gluten-free food. So all this kind of thing. And we come back to the fact about the how, so about the what uh, you eat, so in this case, so gluten-free, but also about the how, so about the, this full structure that will enable him always to get his gluten-free food, even when traveling for tournaments uh, and so on. And is there an element of, um, I spoke to uh, Professor Wendy Wood about this um, last week, and, and it was about um, personal identity. So if you like, it's easier to eat like a vegan if you identify yourself as a vegan, Say you know, so it becomes part of who you are. This I can uh, easily believe so, uh, indeed, so that you can combine your habits. And in this case, I would not necessarily talk only about eating habits, about part of yourself, of what makes you so, about your identity. Yeah. Okay. So here we are. We've had a good night's sleep. We've had a nice breakfast. 
uh, the third pillar before we get. So I understand what you're telling me is these are foundational. If you're not getting enough sleep, eating properly and exercising enough, all the creativity, relaxation and effectiveness thinking in the world isn't going to make you a high performer because you haven't got the basics right. Is that fair? That would be what science would say. Of course, you will find certainly outliers that didn't really pay attention to the first three pillars and they became very successful. I'm really sure of it. Uh, but let's say as a general rule, and if we take the general um, yeah, population and if we take statistics over large numbers, then those large numbers will tell us you first need to get those three first pillars straight. Okay. So you're thinking about Usain Bolt eating his chicken nuggets. <laughs> Didn't, didn't slow him down much. Okay, movement then. Um, I, I'm hoping that uh, the fact that you've called it movement rather than exercise means that we're not talking about having to hit the gym seven times uh, a week uh, to fulfill the movement requirement. No, so let's uh, if we uh, check our body from an evolutionary point of view, we were not made to sit on a chair um, or to stay home um, the full day. So this move part... Uh, um, of course, is often depicted as um, physical exercise, but uh, of course, depending on age, depending on fitness level, you can really adapt this to uh, basically anyone. And if for someone, uh, move can mean, uh, like you just described, gym uh, seven days a week tw and twice a day, if possible, uh, to get enough. And for someone else, it would be getting a walk three times a week, 30 minutes, for example. So it really, really individually, uh, it needs to be individually te tailored. I started trying to break up my uh, sitting on a chair all day because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, a desk jockey. I spend all my time um, sitting down in front of a computer. Um, and I was trying to habitualize it. And basically all I did was I started a countdown timer for an hour yeah. uh, on repeat. And every time the... My phone vibrated. I got up off my chair. I did some push-ups. I did some squats. Not like nothing major. It only took about two or three minutes. But actually, by the time I'd done the whole day, you know, I would do, do have done spread out over the day. But a hundred squats, a hundred press-ups, ten minutes of planks. You know, and it was kind of surprising how doing such a little amount every hour kind of added up across a week or a month or a year. And see, that's an incredible uh, practical example of how easy it can be to build habits, habits that don't take necessarily a lot of time when you do them, because I'm supposing you were talking about perhaps one to three minutes each time. But as you say, so as you add them and because you got somehow conditioned, so to put this uh, timer on your phone and each time you heard this timer, then to do this one to three minutes of uh, activities. And then, of course, at the end of the day, of the week, of the month, of the year, it summed up and then you reach perhaps an activity that you, uh, an activity level that you would have never thought about if you would have thought, okay, uh, I need to do them at once and I need to block time to do them at once. Yeah. And can I ask then in terms of where you say the habit occurs? So is my habit or would my habit be if I kept going or if I kept going that I would instinctively without thought kind of drop to the floor and do my press-ups when my phone vibrated or is it is the aim or where would the habitual behavior be there that I would no longer need the watch that kind of every hour I would just know to do it I'm just wondering in that practical example at what point would you say there was a habit so then you need the trigger you need the stimulus and in this case that would be your phone vibrating because then in this case you'd be it's a condition to um, each time to react each time your phone vibrates to do the activity you coupled to this trigger and this would make it a habit in case you when you stop to think about okay my phone is vibrating hmm should i start to exercise or not so this would not be an automatic process but if as immediately as your phone is vibrating you directly jump onto the floor then we could without even thinking about it then we could say it's a habit Okay. And even in terms of not even thinking, why is my phone vibrating? Just the phone vibrates and you know it's time to, to do whatever it is. Indeed. And you do it. Indeed. Okay. Apart from the fact that I don't get enough sleep and my diet is rubbish, we finally found something that might point me in the right <laughs> direction here. This is good news. <laughs> Let's move on. Um, so the, the other five then, I, I suppose, are more, or they feel certainly more 
vague or less less uh, easy to quantify. Is that uh, fair? Yeah, we could say so, yeah. Okay, so they're think, be effective, learn, relax, and create. And oddly, for me personally, I've, I would say I'm stronger in those five than I am in the other three. Is that unusual? Or, I mean, I, I feel like it's not. I feel like creative people are probably more prone to staying up late and having a rubbish diet, but being very creative while doing it. Maybe that's an awful generalization and I'm just talking about myself. I don't know. No, indeed. So that's also why I said you will find uh, exceptions to the rule and outliers uh, from these uh, three pillars. So really, I just want to turn that um, to stress that those three pillars are really the basics for a healthy brain functioning. And the healthy brain functioning will normally underlie performance. So this is how we would see it. But again, I fully agree that you may have very creative people that are very poor, that have very poor habits in terms of those three pillars and that still make them very creative um, and successful in their domain. So again, this is not why we would fully exclude uh, them. And we could say we could even see some compensation processes at stake. Yeah. And I, I kind of get that. And I also think that it, I'm, I'm speaking very personally from my perspective now that uh, I am very creative, but because I don't get enough sleep and my diet isn't right, I mightn't have the energy to turn that creativity into something concrete or, you know, to follow the creativity through. I, I have uh, the, the energy to be creative, but not necessarily what needs to follow to turn creativity into success. Does that, you know, do you follow what I mean? Yes, and I think that makes perfectly sense. So, uh, because at some point you get this creativity, but for example, how to turn this creativity into a living? Because as soon as you start to think about it, this would mean that you need to start to think about from strategies to make money out of this creativity, for example. And this would start to require other um, abilities that just than just being creative. And um, okay, how can you habitualize creativity? And um, because I've seen, you know, there's 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 theories about, say, for example. Uh, no matter how long it takes or no matter how hard it is, don't don't leave until you've created 10 ideas a day. And if you just do that, um, eventually you'll become this quote unquote idea machine. What's your uh, analysis or what does your paper say about habitualizing creativity? So how can we habitualize creativity? So creativity is thinking about uh, getting novel ideas coming out of your mind. Basically, we would uh, recommend to foster strategies that bring you into a creative state. And those strategies can be, for example, doing exercise. So we know that with the end of in short, your brain can uh, start to be very uh, creative. It can be listening to music. It can be um, watching specific movies. It can be talking to specific people. It can be going for um, um, to visit a museum that you like. So to create the conditions that creativity will appear for you. And presumably, again, that's, a, that's a individualized or personalized. I, I spoke to a comedian once who said that if you want to write comedy, you have to watch and immerse yourself in lots of comedy to kind of get into that zone or start to, you know, just get into the rhythm of finding things, ordinary things funny, I guess. Yes. Yeah, so um, it's why I would highly recommend for everyone, when you notice that you're in a creative state, try to understand what puts you into this creative state. Was it what you just ate, what you just uh, drink, if we're talking about alcohol, or if you just tried some drugs? So think about, uh, not recommending uh, illegal things here, but just think about what puts you into this creative state and then think if you can make it out of a habit, basically. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think it is. I, it, like, I find uh, personally that it's getting started. Like once you kind of get over the uh, inhibition of that's a rubbish idea, that's a rubbish idea. Like I'm a big fan of, excuse my, you know, I was going to say, excuse my French. I don't know. What, I don't presume you don't say excuse my French in France. You probably say excuse my <laughs> German. I don't know what you say, but excuse my French. Um, if you throw enough shit at the wall, something will stick. So like, I just, I will throw ideas one after another and hope that either one of them will be good or one of those will inspire tomorrow is a good idea if you if if you know what i mean so that's that's kind of my approach to it yes yeah, so um again the important is to know what works for you so this we get from experimenting this we can also get from learning from others so that's why i always recommend um 
reading biographies of people, reading biographies of people we respect, of people who inspire us to get this potentially creative thinking mode based on the life of, based on the fact that we would learn about the life and the creativity state of other people as well, as inspiration. Well, that leads neatly on to the, the next of the second five, which is learning. Um, I'm interested that you mentioned biographies about, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, I was in my 20s. Uh, I just stopped reading fiction altogether. Now, again, I'm not saying that that's necessarily a good thing or a bad thing, but I got more value personally out of autobiographies and um, psychology books and, and particularly the likes of, say, Freakonomics, where it mixes kind of uh, real economics, if I call it that, with popular psychology. I wonder if um, that is why the likes of, say, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People and uh, Brendan Bruchard's um, High Performance Habits ha have, and Tim Ferriss as well, Tools of Titans, have captured the public's imagination because it's, I won't, it kind of, it ticks two boxes. So it's interesting to read anyway, but also you're learning something as you're doing it. Yes, and I can really understand this um, popular interest for those books. And even if we can't say that those books are scientific per se, science can explain why reading those books and applying the habits that you read in those books could make you performing more. Again, based on this um, knowledge from, that we get from social psychology, that basically if you get a role model, someone that inspires you, that does something, then if you do it yourself, then you will get also more motivation to do it yourself. Keeping in mind that your role model, your um, inspirational uh, person, then does it as well. Okay. And to talk there again about habitualizing. So I, 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 it feels like I'm talking a lot about myself in this interview. That's not necessarily by design or because of ego, but it's, it's really all I know. Um, my process for this was that I started uh, because I was just running out of time um, to do anything, frankly, with three small kids and a full-time job. I started listening to books on Audible and my reading, in inverted commas, even though I wasn't reading anymore, went through the roof because I now started listening to Audible anytime I was cycling in and out of work, uh, anytime I was, you know, ironing, cutting grass, anytime where I had a chunk of time that I, ironically, that I was doing something habitual like cycling or ironing or something that didn't re, uh, require any cognitive thought that I could dedicate that time to uh, listening to audible books and learning. Is, is that, the, again, is that habitual uh, behavior? Like I would, uh, if I was cycling somewhere, I would automatically be searching for my headphones before I left because I, I wanted to hit play on audible before I started pedaling. Yeah, this I could already perhaps link it to the next um, dimension, which would be uh, be effective. So how to make the best use of your time when you know that as you described, so with full-time job and kids, uh, your time is limited. And then you would start to develop the strategies to um, become more effective. And uh, again, this dimension could bridge the gap to other dimensions like creativity because then you may also feel when you're biking then also listening to the audiobook this could bring you also to creative ideas so then you would be combining the habit dimension so i did good is what you're saying Sylvan. in short yes yeah <laughs> well can, let me just let me just um uh, uh ring a note of caution there because what i what i did actually discover very recently actually is i was so busy being effective that I never spent any time doing the next, uh, and these aren't sequential, I know that, but doing the next one I want to talk about, which is relax. Because if ever there was an opportunity to, to multitask or to listen to Audible or to do something else, I was doing it. So I found that I never actually just went for a walk where all I was doing was just going for a walk. If I was going for a walk, I was doing something else while I was doing it. Um, and I just realized I have not just gone for a walk or a cycle or done anything that didn't have an associated act with it. Um, and I think that was a mistake. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I have to say, I, I can relate a lot to this because it's also very hard for me not to do anything. But indeed, so uh, this relaxed part is a huge part of um, well-being, mental health, 
and we should give us, um, especially, um, especially the people who are very busy should take this into account. And uh, I love, I forgot uh, from who this quote is, but um, that's um, about saying, okay, um, how, how much uh, meditation should I be doing a week? Um, and the answer would be something like one hour or a day, perhaps um, one hour. And um, if my life is very busy, then you should be two hours. So in the sense that uh, the more busy you are, the most attention you should put to this uh, kind of techniques because they help you to get the, the balance, as we would say. And those are very research, well-researched techniques in psychology. I'm thinking about so um, mindfulness, uh, so all the meditation techniques. I'm working a lot myself with um, breathing exercises, so where you pay attention only to your breathing and to the frequency of breathing that um, lead to very powerful changes in your body. So there's a lot to take from them, and especially for the busy people. Um, talk to me just a little bit about the um, the breathing. Uh, I'm interested in that and also how that can be habitualized. Um, and uh, and again, I, I'm not calling on you. I don't, I'm not trying to create headlines and go, scientist says this is a load of rubbish. But I've been giving that um, Wim Hof breathing technique a crack recently. And I don't know what to make of it at all. <laughs> so what breathing are, are you um, doing or talking uh, so about? So basically, uh, I always like to uh, start with this. Um, we didn't learn to breathe. Our breathing is um, automatically controlled by, in our body, and, but we get the possibility to control it. And with this possibility, we get, uh, I love to take the metaphor of a car. With your breathing, you can steer your breathing to either accelerate, activate, or decelerate relax your body and you just talked about the Wim Hof method this Wim Hof method will be talk uh, will be linked to activation then we would be talking about um, hyperventilation we would be talking about fast uh, breathing and this would uh, lead to an activation of the body activation of uh, in physiological terms of the sympathetic nervous system so the fight and flight system which help us to give us energy on the contrary, if we are talking about relaxation, then we would be talking about slow breathing. Uh, and in my case, um, slow pace breathing, pacing meaning that we would target a specific inhalation and exhalation times in order to bring your breathing into the state of resonance. I may expand very quickly uh, on this. Basically, we know that uh, with a slow breathing pattern, specific slow breathing pattern, we can create a so-called cardiovascular resonance because we will uh, bring, uh, I will put it into lay term, or breathing and heart frequency uh, in harmony. It's very lay term, but just for everyone to understand. And everyone has an individual resonance frequency. That's a big part of my work to find this resonance frequency of people. And when you are breathing at this slow, pace breathing resonance frequency, we are optimizing uh, many physiological phenomena in your body. And in particular, we are, um, you are um, activating the break in your body that helps you to relax. So this famous parasympathetic nervous system, the rest and digest system of our body, when we do the slow pace breathing uh, technique, we are uh, doing us a lot of good. Um, two questions on that. Um, first of all, is this something that you just do, you know, for 10 minutes here and there, or are you talking about changing the way you breathe all the time? Like it just, so it becomes your new way of breathing as your habit or as your, you know, you don't even think about it. You now just breathe more slowly and more in tune with your body 24 seven. Yeah. So first of all, it has to be a conscious intervention. So it is not something natural and you will have to do it with a pacer. So there are a lot of smartphone apps that uh, allow this. If you type in breathe pacer into your uh, smartphone um, application search mode, uh, you will find many of those apps. Um, then it's also connected to some watches. For example, uh, the Apple Watch, you get directly this breathing app. You got many devices that offer you to breathe at this uh, um, uh, resonance frequency and that would provide you with those benefits basically so it should be conscious at the beginning but then we know also that when you do interventions like this for a long time it will also uh, trigger a lower so a slower breathing frequency uh, in you 
And I can uh, from just report one study of um, ours that we did at the German Sports University. It was about uh, doing this uh, slow paced breathing exercise as a night, uh, as an evening routine. So 15 minutes before sleeping every night for, for 30 days. So 15 minutes every evening for 30 days. And um, our participants were wearing some electrocardiogram system during the night. So we checked this, the way their heart was sleeping. And to put it also in uh, lay understandable terms, the heart was sleeping better after this slow paced breathing intervention than before the slow paced breathing intervention. That's incredible. And, and sorry, you talked about their, you know, your investigations into individual frequencies. They were just given, a spe- did they all breathe at the same pace or was it individualized to each of them? So for this uh, experiment, and most of the time when we do the experiments, we use a general pace, which is six cycles per minute. So it's usually half of our spontaneous breathing frequency, which is between 12 and 20 cycles per minute. So it's quite slow. We should not hyperventilate, so we should keep a shallow breathing so as not to get dizzy. And um, basically, we, do, we usually do this six cycles per minute frequency because we know for most of the people, so it will, for everyone, it will bring results. If we find out the sweet spot of the resonance frequency, we could have even higher results, but we already know that this six cycles per minute frequency works uh, in general for everyone. Uh, I actually just got, <laughs> you'll be interested to hear, Savan, I just got a new uh, Garmin watch there about two weeks ago. So I can tell you <laughs> that uh, my average breathing uh, is uh, 14 when I'm awake. Okay, so that could be um, actually a good training for you to try this uh, method. So as I said, 15 minutes uh, a day. So I really strongly advise before sleeping because it helps you to put your body in to the sleeping mode. And then you may see after some times that even your spontaneous breathing frequency during the day is decreasing. Brilliant. I'm going to give that a try. Can I ask, and it might be completely unrelated. Um, I, I saw a word that I'd never seen before um, last week. And I'm finding that's happening with increasing regularity the more I go down this rabbit hole. Um, but I also saw that you did a, a lot of research in this. I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, but vagus nerve or vagus nerve or what what is that and has that got something to do with this oh yes that has something to do so the vagus nerve is i would say uh, i'm a big fan of the vagus nerve so the vagus nerve is uh, i could say almost all my life became all my life uh, my research life so basically the vagus nerve is the main nerve of the parasympathetic system so this system that puts us at uh, rest and that uh, help us to recover energy and uh, when you do this slow pace breathing activity this is one of the most efficient and uh, fastest way to increase the activity of the vagus nerve i have a saying about that i say that many problems in the world come because the world is too sympathetic meaning that uh, people activate too much the sympathetic nervous system and we should get the world more parasympathetic using this kind of relaxation techniques. I think, uh, and I don't know if you agree with me, um, I think that uh, considering I heard the word for the first time last week, this is going to be one of those things that is going to explode and there's going to be a ton of books. You should write one, by the way, Sylvan. There's going to be a ton of books of how to train the, uh, that nerve uh, to, to be healthier, calmer, more in tune with yourself, all of this stuff as a kind of health and wellness um, thing. Do you, do you think that's coming or has it happened yet and I just missed it? No, so uh, it's actually, um, there's a big uh, interest of researchers all over the world. I'm just one, uh, one of them, uh, but that already recognize the potential of the vagus nerve. And we, so I'm talking about uh, non-invasive techniques, no, but in the medicine it's not since a long time. And you got even uh, invasive uh, vagus nerve stimulation where you put electrodes into the body. But the good things of the relaxation techniques that we have is that we are talking about non-invasive methods that most of the time, no side effects. And yes, so I, I really hope that uh, there will be more books, hopefully one of mine uh, at some point, um, that will help people to get aware about the importance of the vagus nerve in our lives because it governs what we call all the self-regulation pot, um, processes. So to put it in a nutshell, if you have a good activation of your vagus nerve, you will be um, able to adapt yourself to most of the situations that life um, offers you. Interesting. It seems to me like that should be the first pillar. 
I, I'll, I'll get a, I'll worry about the sleep later. Once I have that vagus nerve under control, I'll be fine. But uh, actually, to jump on this, so by sleeping, you're activating your vagus nerve. So sleeping is a great way to activate your vagus nerve, and you directly see it in your vagus nerve when you didn't get a good night's sleep. Right. Okay. Well, if I, we can't get away from it, Savan. I need more sleep. That's, that's, there's no escaping this fact. The final um, uh, of the eight, uh, it seems to me, has an element of overlap between some of the others, between particularly learning and creating. But maybe that's just because I'm a person who feels he's creative uh, and likes learning. So I automatically assume that think means some level of creativity and learning. So what do you mean in this research with think? So with the research with think, we target specifically what we call in psychology executive functions. What are executive functions? So it's everything that allows us to think, let's say, at a deeper uh, level uh, to some extent, and also to uh, play with information. So for example, executive functions are uh, contents or um, ability to inhibit things, to not get distracted by things. So to focus on something, to focus on a task, to focus on an essay, on um, a meeting we need to prepare. So this would be uh, our ability to inhibit things. Then we've got what we call the working memory that uh, helps us to play with um, words and numbers in our mind, to manipulate information live without having to type it or to write it. Um, and the last part would be what we call the cognitive flexibility. It's basically, uh, we know that with uh, multitasking, so when you have several things to do, how fast or um, how good are you at switching from one task to another? So that would be the core of what we call the executive functions. And uh, when you get them straight, so this will uh, provide you a very strong basis for what we could call also, so we could also say in lay terms that these are the basis of intelligence to some extent because they will allow some more advanced thinking about abstract things, for example. Um, just very quickly before I go then, I mean, do you understand, uh, maybe working with high performers the whole time, sorry, I don't mean to understand in a patronizing way, but for if you're not a high performer, as you say you aren't, and I'm certainly not, it does seem like there's an awful lot involved to being a high performer. I can see how people would get overwhelmed listening at this going, Jesus, there's a lot to do. <laughs> I don't know if I'll have the time, energy or will to do any of all, or all of that. I could start with a quote. Um, if it was easy, everyone would do it. Everyone would be high performance and there's only one gold medal. There's only one world champion. Yeah. So yes, yeah, so we are talking about, um, when we're talking about elite performance, it means that we need to take care about many, many domains uh, of um, let's say life. So beyond the own discipline of life to get everything straight. So it may seem overwhelming, but I think we could still get a good message into that because so it was not the purpose of this scientific paper. But if we would like to expand the scientific paper into a more um, accessible paper, we could list easy strategies that basically everyone can do to implement, to start to implement those eight categories. And you know what? If you did that, Sylvan, and I might do it, I might tap you up, we can do it together. You'd probably have one of the highest performing Google pages because it combines, <laughs> it combines the, the, the two things that people want. Um, they want to get better at stuff, but they want it to be easy. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Which, which is um, true. Um, it, it's, it's really fascinating uh, talking to you, Sylvan. I'm really interested to see um, where it goes next. Um, I personally, in terms of where we are, uh, I know you didn't ask, but I'm going to tell you anyway, where, where I am on this spectrum and what I've gathered from our talk, and I suspect uh, there's going to be a lot of people listening to this, they will, people will immediately know the areas where they're not, you know, they're not right. So, I mean... As I say, for me, the three cores are all out. The sleeping, eating, and moving is is all wrong. Um, and, you know, I think part of that is that I find some of them... So when you say relax, right, I, I can set aside 10 minutes to do meditation. That That's kind of easy. But getting to bed on time with uh, everything that needs to be done, done, that's hard. Um, being, creati being creative... I don't, and I think this is kind of interesting from our chat as well. I don't think about being creative. It just kind of, it just happens. Like things will occur to me and like, I think that's good or that's funny or that's, and I could be doing absolutely anything in the world at the time. 
Um, but I do appreciate that there's still ways I could habitualize the process more because I know that, for example, I have friends who are professional musicians uh, and they treat us. And I found this very odd. I might just get your thoughts on this. I found this really odd. Professional musician friends of mine who have record deals, like they're, they, you know, they, they've millions of um, listens on Spotify, but they treat it like a nine to five job. So they go into the studio every day at the same time and they finish every day at the same time. And now that I talk to you, that makes sense. They have a routine. They're going to be creative between nine and five uh, and they're, they're, gearing their life maybe their sleep they're eating their movement towards having that window but i always thought we, we kind of were taught to think that creativity is this spark that hits you at an unexpected time and that I, it, my initial reaction was you could never kind of force creativity to come by habitualizing that sort of behavior but now it kind of makes sense does it yeah and i think that's a Perfect example what you are taking because we may picture perhaps naively seeing music uh, as a pure creative thing. But if you want to make it happen, so to get successful with it, then it's not only about playing whenever uh, the envy takes you. So it's really getting this some discipline to, first of all, to train the instrument and then to get the discipline to get the recording happen. And this is where we come back to this nine to five story because then uh, between nine and five, even if you're not uh, being fully creative from nine to five, you're still uh, getting more done than the one that would be sitting at home waiting for creativity just to spark in the air. Brilliant. Um, Sivan, it's been uh, really, really interesting talking to you. Uh, and the final thing that I know after talking to you is I'm definitely going to go and research more about the vagus nerve. Uh, and uh, as I say, get right in that book so that I can uh, interview again about it and I can pick up, I'll get a mate's race on the copy of it. I would love to. And then perhaps the next podcast, it would be the habits about the vagus nerve. I would also feel easily one hour about that, Brian. Okay. Brilliant. Listen, it's been lovely to talk to you and thank you very much for your time. Have a great day. Sammy, have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye. I've subsequently discovered, I think I should be pronouncing vagus nerve as vagus nerve. Uh, and I have done some of the breathing um, techniques that we discussed there. It's, um, it's really interesting stuff. And I genuinely do hope that uh, he releases a book on it and that we do get to chat to him again. Um, thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Habits Habit podcast. Uh, we'll have another episode for you next week. Hurrah!